The views and opinions expressed in the following podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the producers, the affiliates, or digital platforms hosting this podcast. All content is for the purposes of education, conjecture, and at times entertainment. We promote inclusiveness and diversity. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Into the Deep with Jay Caster. Welcome to Into the Deep. I'm Jay Costa. I am honored to host today's guest. He's a best-selling author and world-renowned researcher in lost ancient civilizations. Today's guest is Brian Forster. Brian has written a myriad of books and has explored more than a hundred countries researching and writing about ancient, mysterious, megalithic works found in Peru, Bolivia, Mexico, Egypt, as well as the perplexing ancient elongated human skulls of the Peruvian Paracas culture. We talk about so much in this episode, everything from the enigmatic Tiwanaku to the laser-perfect precision found at Pumapunku to the possibility that even extraterrestrials could have built Machu Picchu. So join me as we seek light and journey into the deep with Brian Forster. Enjoy. Brian, thank you so much for joining me here. Uh, If you could, for our listeners and our viewers, I know who you are, but if you wouldn't mind sharing who you are and what it is you do, my friend. Sure, Jay. Well, what I do is I explore ancient, mysterious places all over the world. Um, I'm based in Peru and have been for about 15 years because Peru has probably more ancient enigmas than any other country on the planet. And uh, my fascination with this stuff started in childhood with uh, ancient Egypt, you know, from National Geographic and things like that. So, um, yeah, I've explored all over the world and I've seen most of the ancient places that I've wanted to see, except uh, I'd still like to go to India, which I haven't been to. And uh, there are a lot of megalithic sites in India that can't be explained by conventional academia. So, um, yeah, I've been to Lebanon, uh, Bolivia, Easter Island, well, many places. Right on. It's it's so fascinating because I can align with that. You know, National Geographic just opened up my my mind. You know, from the magazines, even some of the documentaries and the shows. Like how, what got you here though? I mean, that's just like you've done so much, and you know what what that leap of faith. Like, what were you doing? Were you working an odd job and decided, you know what, I'm going to go do this? Well, it's a really long story, but in terms of Peru, I basically came down here to visit. <clears throat> and the first day that I was in the city of Cusco, I noticed that there were these megalithic stone constructions that didn't make any sense in terms of the Inca culture that supposedly built them, because they were a Bronze Age people. And these constructions are an incredibly hard stone like granite and so tight fitting that you can't fit a human hair in the joints. So the guide I had that day told me the Inca built all of it. And I said, that's impossible. And so I just kept coming back to Peru for like a month at a time to explore more. And eventually around 14 years ago, I just, I simply bought a one-way ticket and that was it. Wow. That's incredible. And have, 
you found that where you were at now in life uh, versus, you know, that 14, 15 years ago, like, have you uncovered more mystery than you realized? Did you realize how deep this rabbit hole was going to go? Um, yeah, well, of course, I started with all of the conventional places like Machu Picchu and other lo major locations in Peru. And over the course of time, because I know a lot of local people who know places that are off the beaten path, I've been able to see almost everything that I've, I've, that I've ever heard of or haven't heard of so far. And it just, it, it just, it maintains my intrigue simply because there is more, I think, to see nothing on a, probably on a profound level, but uh, there are so many ancient sites in Peru that uh, all of Peru is basically a giant archeological site, no matter where you go, even in the middle of the desert, you can find anomalies that don't, uh, you know, that kind of defy what academics talk about. I'm actually very close to the Nazca Lines, which of course is a great enigma. Um, it's about a three hour drive from where I'm at right now. Wow. No kidding. Wow. So I've got to ask if you, you know, in your opinion, do you feel that with Machu Picchu, was it built for Pachacuti, in your opinion? No, I think it's pretty obvious. I've been there about 90 times now, and uh, I'm not discovering anything new as of late, but it's, it's really obvious when you look at the construction that the Inca discovered the site probably at the time of Pachacutec, say in the 1400s, and then they built a massive city around what they found because the, the center part is megalithic, consisting of huge stone, uh, granite stone blocks that interlock. And then all the rest of the site, you can see the Inca were capable of. So it's like a lot of the ancient places in Peru. The central core part is a megalithic site that was built by somebody else. And then the Inca adopted it and, and built you know, a city or a protective system of walls and terraces and things around that central core. Interesting. In your your field, you know, what's the overall consensus of like what what or who that culture was? I mean that I mean we're talking almost eight thousand feet, right? If I'm not mistaken, don't quote me on that. But I mean that's a pretty high mountain for you know someone to say, hey, look, let's just build up here and be safe and do our thing, and no one will bother us. Well, the interesting thing about Machu Picchu is that all the mountains around it are are domed. You know, that's, it's all granite formation like that. <clears throat> Machu Picchu, it looks like somebody came and cut the mountaintop off in order to build the central site. And then the Inca took advantage of that and, uh, you know, conti continued to build. Some, uh, some ar archaeologists think that it was built in the course of 25 years, but uh, Hiram Bingham III, who was the American who made it famous in 1912, he believed it took hundreds, if not thousands of years to construct because it's just so vast. Right on. And what are your thoughts as far as like how this came to be, you know, in some advanced civilization or, or something else? Well, I think it was definitely an advanced civilization. Who they were, <clears throat> I still have no idea. Of course, some people would say it would be quote unquote Atlanteans, um, you know, whether or not Atlantis existed or not we don't know but i'm also open to the idea that it could have been done by extraterrestrials for some reason that they came they built there was a massive global uh, 
series of cataclysms that happened between 13,000 and 12,000 years ago, and that either wiped them out or they were able to, to leave. So I'm open to the idea that uh, extraterrestrials have visited the Earth and left their footprint mainly, you know, in terms of stone construction that we still see to this day. Okay. And especially with Peru and then, like you said, with Bolivia, I mean, so close and you're seeing a lot of the, you know, similar things, whether you're talking like Tiwanaku and everything with these stone structures and precision, I mean, precision stone cutting. um, I think that's just so fascinating about it. And like, being there in person, like what was your first take on it? The first time you saw it, like what, what was your instinct or your gut reaction, I guess. Uh, at which, which location? Uh, either or, I mean, I, cause I'm just thinking my brain's going in so many places, just in that whole area. I feel like, do you see similarities between the stone structures in Bolivia and the stone structures in Peru? Or do you feel like there's a distinction between the two and like, what were your feelings about them when you first saw either? Well, that's a good that's a good question because it appears that whoever built Tiwanaku and Pumapunku <clears throat> could have been even more advanced than those who did the construction in in and around Cusco because the precision at Pumapunku is almost laser perfect, like perfectly flat surfaces, like a ta- like a glass tabletop. Whereas in uh, Peru, you have more polygonal work, and you know different stones of different shapes and sizes perfectly interlocking. So I think we're looking at two different civilizations. And then when you look at Egypt, I think it was at least a third. And then um, Easter Island, probably a fourth. So there were probably multiple advanced cultures with different techniques and different approaches who maybe inhabited the planet at the same time, but maybe at different times, but definitely what we call pre-cataclysmic. And why would you say pre-cataclysmic? Is there something that indicates that it would be before something happened? Well, yeah, because there's a lot of growing scientific evidence that there were a series of global cataclysms that happened during what's called the Younger Dryas period, which is between 13,000 and 12,000 years ago. Uh, you know, major earthquakes, possibly a change in the axis of the planet, sea levels rising by 350 feet, uh, causing mass movement of anyone living close to the ocean during that time period. And there were two major pulses in the rise of sea level, um, called uh, Pulse A and Pulse B. One was possibly 200 feet in, in quite a short period of time. And then the next one was another 150 feet within that 1,000-year time window. We also see cataclysmic damage to all of the major structures the megalithic ones, as in some massive force hit them and caused them to either break or also we see signs of vitrification, which is the melting of the hard stone surfaces themselves. So I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because with the vitrification, do you feel that that was part of the building process in any way based on like what you can see, like more so in Peru? Well, yeah, actually, um, there are signs of that in the city of Cusco. There's one building called the Cori Cancha, and its construction is technically almost perfect. The stones aren't super huge in size, but they're so tightly fitting. And along the horizontal surfaces, you can see 
a glassy appearance at the joints and that and not in the verticals so that would look to me as if during the process of construction they were using some kind of uh, they had some capability of being able to soften the stone temporarily so that these stones would interlock like that so perfectly yeah i mean just seeing again just seeing some of the lines in between the stones and just like how they're there's no rhyme or reason. It, it seems like there's nothing. It's pretty asymmetrical. It, it, it seems. Mm -hmm. So, and then versus with Bolivia, where you're saying there's more precision, would you say there's more symmetry with some of the, the construction? Well, the problem with Tiwanaku and Pumapunku is that they were definitely damaged by some kind of cataclysmic event. Um, there could have actually been a giant uh, or a tsunami in Lake Titicaca that came from the north and actually buried the whole site in mud um, because Poznansky, who was the Bolivian archaeologist who spent 50 years there, he, he more or less uncovered Pumapunku. It seemed to have been buried in this, this you know, quite a few feet of, of mud. And so he took 50 years to slowly uncover it. Tiwanaku was exposed to some degree because there are giant pillars that are as much as 30 feet tall that would have projected through this mud um, covering uh, even when the Tiwanaku civilization, which is what it's, it's named after, found it around 100 AD. Wow. It just makes so many people wonder, like, what's still buried, right? What's still oh, yeah. to be discovered? Well, actually, they've done, recently they did uh, a drone study of Tiwanaku and Pumapunku with ground penetrating radar. And they found that there are several layers underneath the present structures that we see on the surface. So there are large chambers um, that, are, that are still underground, but the Bolivian government for some reason doesn't want to do any excavation and they don't really want to uh, admit that there is all of this work that is still yet to be uncovered if, if they had the, the guts to do it. I wonder why that is. Uh, it's mainly political because the the, uh, the presidents of uh, of Bolivia believe that their uh, ancestors, who were the Aymara people, were the ones who actually did the construction work two thousand years ago. But they were at best a Bronze Age people, and you would need to have very advanced technology to be able to do any of the stone manipulation that we see. Um, also, there are two quarries for the stone. There's a gray stone called andesite, which comes from a volcano about 60 kilometers to the northeast or 40 miles. And then the red sandstone, which are these giant blocks, some weighing over 100 tons, are from a quarry about eight miles over the mountains to the west. So to think that a, <clears throat> excuse me, to think that a Bronze Age people would bother to to do that you know to do that kind of work doesn't make any sense at all so it's a it's simply a political cover-up um, it was an international team that did the drone work so it is possible that there will be pressure from unesco or other international bodies to recommend that there be more um, excavations done but i think it'll require a change in government mm. so it sounds like they're fearful of a change in narrative of what they've believed for so long to be what their yeah, history yeah, is. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And Poznanski was very uh, progressive in, in his, in his work. He wrote two giant volumes 
of drawings and, and writings about the, about the site of Tiwanaku and Pumapunku. Um, and he suggested that the sites were as much as 17,000 years old. But of course, he, he was, uh, academics destroyed his career because he made such an you know, outlandish uh, statement like that, because they all believe, again, that it was built between about 100 AD and 1000 AD. Hmm. And going back to you saying the quarry, you know, and then that uh, also that site, uh, volcanic site for some of these stones. I mean, what do you think the purpose was? Were they deliberately seeking out these specific types of stones and bringing them to the site? What, what, has there been anything you've uncovered that kind of leans you in any direction and why they would choose these specific stones? <clears throat> yeah, well, what's quite intriguing is that the um, the Reds, I've been there a number of times with a, a Tesla meter, you know, which measures magnetic fields. And um, the red sandstone is completely neutral. If you put the Tesla meter very close to it or run it along one of the sandstone blocks, you don't get any reading whatsoever. But with the andesite, um, the, the meter, even a simple compass will go very erratic. So it seems to me that the foundation was built of sandstone because it was neutral. And then on top of that, you had the andesite. And I believe that there was, um, it was a giant energetic system of some kind that was constructed that utilized the earth's natural uh, magnetism and that the stone, the andesite is naturally magnetic because it does contain magnetite. So I think it was uh, that they built uh, built it to create some kind of force field within the structure itself. For what purpose? You know, there are all sorts of different speculations. Some some believe that it was used to enhance uh, seeds to make them more productive, um, or it could have been done in order to create an alternate field of energy so that you would be in an alternate state of consciousness if you were within that field itself. So I'm going back in November again, which first time in almost three years. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, what they've done to the site since uh, the last time I was there. Yeah, I bet. And I, I just, obviously there's just so many questions because, you know, how, you know, we, we tend to think in such a linear way of like how cultures and civilizations are. And like, so they weren't as advanced as us, but clearly they, they had a knowledge or knowledges of, of things that were going on and but yet we have no record i mean even just with the inca there was no written language but i mean just predating that i mean how you know why wouldn't even the presidents of bolivia want to find out the truth about these things i just don't understand well again for them it's a in uh, bolivia it's a political thing yeah. when the president um, is inaugurated they always do the ceremony at Tiwanaku itself, not in the city of La Paz. So again, it's an homage to his ancestors. I see. Um, you know, even though that's kind of misdirected because, you know, the more I visit there, the more I, I take people there on tour, uh, the more the information is being uh, shared to the general public that obviously something very advanced happened in that location in terms of its construction and also destruction. Right. Going back to something you said earlier too, and then a, a lot with, you know, a lot of the field research you've done too. And, and we're talking like with like the elongated skulls that are seen in that region. And you brought up a point earlier about 
the possibility of extraterrestrial help with some of these things. And I can't help but think of, you know, Nazca lines, you know. So walk me through, like, what's that process like when you're trying to gather that kind of research and maybe you're met with opposition for people who don't want to even discuss the possibility of extraterrestrials? Well, of course, if, if you bring the idea of extraterrestrials up in an academic setting, you're automatically discounted as being, you know, a nutcase, even though they, they can't explain it with their conventional knowledge. So that's why, you know, I'm not convinced about extraterrestrial involvement, but my mind is open to the idea because if you can't explain who did it, you have to open up the, you know, all the possible ideas. And since the work is so incredibly advanced in some ways, more advanced than what we can do today, then I don't, you know, if you can't name the civilization who did it, you have to have your mind open to any possibility. Yeah. I think that's where a lot of folks get stuck is some folks, I don't know why, just don't want to dig a little bit deeper. They're fine with whatever the narrative is, but yet you're wired differently. Uh, I think I am, other people are, but what do you think that is within us that like, wants to still uncover and find out the truth. Oh, I'm sorry. Could you ask that again? No worries. What do you think it is about like an individual like yourself that wants to keep going a little bit further and uncovering more truth and to get to the bottom of it? Well, it's the pursuit of, of the truth. Um, as I said, the first day I was in Cusco, I saw this obvious difference between what the Inca were capable of and what they weren't. And so that just, you know, that drew me into exploring um, all of the sites that I could um, each time that I went. And eventually it became the most important uh, pursuit for me to do was to um, actually live in this area in order to be able to interact with local people who knew things that I didn't know. Which, And I've learned from a number of different people who, who um, showed me sites that I'd never heard of. Um, ancestral knowledge that I didn't know about, um, oral tra traditions that I hadn't heard. And I, I put as much weight on oral tradition as I do on academic study because oral tradition is has a tendency to describe what actually happened in the past. Maybe it's been turned into mythology or, or fiction over time, but there's always a foundational truth to this stuff. And a lot of the oral traditions can get very esoteric and some would say kind of cuckoo, but uh, it always starts with a grain of truth and then is expanded upon or in some ways maybe corrupted over the course of time through uh, improper passing down of knowledge or, you know, fabricating onto something which is based on fact. So that's, yeah, that's what keeps me here because um, there's still more, to, there's still more to know. There's still more that I want to, study and i love showing these places to peruvians and and foreigners alike it's it's fascinating because when you're when you're at these sites and you're finding out about these sites like you said when somebody else or some other folks were introducing you to these new places you're learning these oral traditions have there been those aha moments for yourself where you've connected some dots based on what you've observed and absorbed from, you know, the conversations and the observations? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, 
more so, not as much now, but more so in the past. Um, probably my two best teachers. One is uh, Teo Paredes, who's a, a PhD anthropologist who lives in Cusco, who knows far more than I will ever know. But he's been a, a great teacher to me of teaching me the original names of places because uh, the names that we know of these uh, of these sites now are, are usually not the original name. So when you can learn the original name, that's a description of what the site is and was, and probably its function as well. So uh, there is a major site called uh, Saksaiwaman, which is outside of Cusco, that ha probably has the largest megalithic wall in the world, but that's not its original name. That's a corruption due to translation by the Spanish. So its, its original name was probably Saksauma, which means the place where the heart and the mind come together. And that like the unification of, uh, of the left and right brain. So it was, it was probably an incredible ceremonial spiritual learning center for the Inca. But again, whoever built it, um, you know, had capabilities way beyond what the Inca uh, had. And it's, it's an amazing site because people don't understand how big it is until they're actually on location. You can take lots of videos and pictures of it, you know, with people for scale. But when you're actually um, interacting with these giant stones in person, it's, you know, it's, it's an otherworldly experience. I can only imagine. And do you think that, you know, going back to the use of particular types of stone has an impact on, you know, that energy field and maybe how it's impacting, you know, the environment? Yeah, I think so, because it, it seems that most of the stone that was used um, has a high quartz content. Uh, even, you know, sandstone does, of course, but also granite and basalt, which are the main stones used around the city of Cusco. They, they're very high in quartz content, and we know that quartz has a piezoelectric, you know, energy-producing characteristic. And uh, the quarries, uh, the quarry for the basalt is, um, or basalt, is about 40, again, about 45 miles away from the city itself. So you're talking millions of tons of stone that were moved from this one quarry because of its uh, high quality to the city of Cusco, uh, Cusco to make these massive megalithic constructions. So that, you know, that couldn't have been done by llamas or by people, you know, by people with, um, carts or, or sledges or something like that. What are your theories like on, on how they got this stuff transported? I think it had to be levitated yeah. or ne neutralized gra uh, neutralization of, of gravity. Thinking in the sense of like maybe using sound uh, or frequency or sound or using some sort of other device that maybe, you know. I think both. I think it was frequency and also uh, a technology that, that created that frequency that was able to match some characteristic in the quartz itself, most likely, that made it made the, the stone's weight neutral. Because mm. it's, it's so fascinating that we hear about these different stones and the quarries being so many miles away, and we don't, I, not us, but I, generally speaking, I'll, general public, most people aren't really thinking about the fact that they're trying to move these massive stones and these megalithic structures that, I mean, just how many hundreds of cubic tons and they're not thinking about how 
they were transported and how they moved them from a different location. And that brings up so many points. Yeah, and that's the problem. The problem that I have is that most people who visit Peru, you know, they'll hire a local guide, but the local guide will have gone to tourism school and, and or university. And whatever their professors taught them is what they spout out. And that's all based on Western archaeology. Again, they're not really allowed to talk about what their grandparents taught them. Um, at least they're not allowed to say that in public. And so most visitors don't, you know, literally don't ask questions. Like, how is it possible? You know, you say this, this block weighs 10 tons. How would you move it over a mountainous surface? They, they simply don't ask. They just simply absorb whatever the, the guide has to say. And that was the difference with me is that automatically the first day I was asking my guide questions. Like, how is it possible? <laughs> you know, and he was like, uh, I don't know. You know, and I, I looked at all the academic papers about theories of how it was done. None of it made any sense. And that's what drew me into uh, this mystery, mystery in the first place. And, and I love that because I think there's, there's still so much more for us to learn. And I'm, I'm still fascinated by the mystery of it. So thankfully, there's individuals like you out there who are actually, you know, in the field, doing the work, and trying to uncover things for people so that we can learn more and have a greater understanding. So I appreciate your work. Yeah. Oh, my, my pleasure. And I'm very proud to say that there are quite a few people younger than myself who uh, have YouTube channels now to some degree based on videos of mine that they watch. And so, you know, they've been drawn to Peru and Bolivia and Egypt and other locations to see for themselves uh, to some degree what I've been showing to the public. And then they make their own videos based on that. And it's creating quite a you know quite a wide audience globally now which is wonderful so that you know that's the main thing that i i have enjoyed doing is being able to influence others to think and question and explore on their own to see you know what it is i and others have been talking about and have you found that any of your desires or your goals now today uh, are different than where they were maybe that 14 15 years ago well, 14 or 15 years ago, of course, I was just starting out with this stuff. And so um, I was hungry to see whatever I could um, and explore as much as I could. Now, uh, mainly because of COVID, I've had no opportunity to travel about for a couple of years. So it's just it's starting up now. Peruvian tourism is is picking up very, very uh, quickly now, which is wonderful. So I'm able to get back out and see things. We have a major tour happening in November with people coming to see Peru and Bolivia. So, um, yeah, since I haven't been to these places, uh, at least Bolivia for three years, it'd be interesting to see if there have been any new developments, especially at Tiwanaku and Puma Punku. Right on. And, and what kind of developments are you hoping for? Like, is there something that maybe you, the last time you were there was kind of left unsettled and you're hoping that maybe someone has a little bit more info on? Well, I'm, I want to see if they've done any new excavations or not. Um, lately, what they've been doing, probably the last 10 times I've been there, is that they've done excavations. They've exposed some major large stone blocks. And then I'd go back six months later, and they will have covered them back up again. So that's, you know, that's kind of odd. 
<clears throat> normally an excavation continues. You just continue to un uncover and uncover and uncover. But again, I think that's uh, due to government um, pressure that they're allowed to do an excavation and expose something, record it, but then they're told to cover it back up again. And in some cases, an additional two feet of, of uh, material like stone and dirt has been added on top of what it is that they excavated. So it definitely seems to me that they've been covering up uh, these discoveries. Hmm. What's your hope for when you're doing your tours, you know, your motivation and like, what is your hope for that person going on that trip and that you guiding them through it? What, what's your hope for that individual and their takeaways and like, what, what what's your heart feel in that? Well, mainly to see the to see what's become the obvious. Um, you know, we've done this for again the tour is probably for fourteen years, so we've uh, taken literally thousands of people to these locations, and not one of them has ever said, "Well, I believe the conventional academic story." They, they're all blown away <clears throat> because, again, to be there in person is different from watching a video or, or seeing a photograph or reading a book. You know, there you have a three hundred and sixty degree view. In some places, you can go up and look down on the location. So um, it's about a thousand times more intriguing to be there in person than it is to read a book about these places. And ev everyone's always been um, in awe of what it is that they've experienced. Yeah. And, and I can just imagine that, you know, like you said, pictures and video, they just cannot do it justice. Yeah. Can't. And and with the alignments of everything, well, with, whether we're talking, you know, celestial alignments and planetary alignments with some of these structures, um, what are your feelings and theories behind uh, the purposefulness of that? Well, a lot of them are, are aligned to the solstices or the equinoxes, you know, to this day, especially the Inca constructions. But there are others that appear to be 23 and a half degrees off the cardinal direction. So that leads me to possibly believe that the axis of the earth changed probably around 13 to 12,000 years ago, that it went from one axis to another. And maybe the planet has done that several times over the course of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. Uh, we see that in, in Egypt too. We see very specific locations like Karnak that uh, where the central causeway is 23 and a half degrees off what it's supposed to be. So... And do you, do you feel like there's some correlations? I know we talked earlier about there being at least, you know, approximately, you know, maybe four different advanced civilizations. But do you feel like there's a correlation whether those might have been around the same period since they're off in the same, same amount? Um, I would think so. Um, um yeah, but how, how many different times the axis of the Earth has changed? I'm I'm not sure. Mm. Uh, but there's a, a guy who does YouTube videos whose name escapes me at the moment, who's done major analysis of most of the ancient sites on the planet, and he's he's figured out that there were five different axis um, positions of the of the north and south poles over the course of I think a quarter million years. And so he assigns the original dates um, of these different locations to these different um, positions of the axis. 
Interesting. Gosh. And I mean, that would change a lot, you know, obviously for the way things are, you know, positioned, built, so on and so forth, meanings uh, throughout, you know, millennia. Mm -hmm. Why, why do you think it is that when we, we just kind of get this like glossed over version of, of the history of some of these places, you know, even just in the Western world, you know, we, we don't really talk about these ancient cultures from other continents and other countries. Mm -hmm. Well, again, I think the main thing is that academia in general is kind of stuck with, with what they believe. I recently put a, a video on my YouTube channel about um, excavations at the quarry at Baalbek in Lebanon, where they've recently exposed a 1,600 ton block. Um, and <clears throat> most academics believe the Romans did all of this work. And uh, our first guide, I've been there twice, the first time we went with the local guide, she said that uh, the reason why the Romans did work on such a massive scale at Baalbek was they were trying to impress the local people, which doesn't make any sense at all. So after about three hours, we were able to convince her that there was the possibility that the Romans came much later and built on top of the megalithic foundation and, um, <clears throat> that exists there. It seems to be prevalent that where there's a younger or newer culture that comes along, finds these ruins, builds upon them, whether we're talking temples, sometimes it's churches, it's all these different things because they're either seen as power centers or, or what have you. And but we lose a lot of that in translation to your point earlier with language and the oral traditions. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I find it fascinating that we, we wouldn't want to know the origins of something. We, we just kind of gloss it over and then we just bring in this new story and this new narrative of like, no, this is what it is. Stick with this. Pay no attention to that. Yeah. Well, what's fortunate again is that uh, people are, st are starting to wake up quite quickly about this. And um, the more people are able to go to these ancient locations and see for themselves uh, what I and others have been talking about, the more the information is spread, the more the um, academic paradigm is starting to break down because it doesn't make any sense, or at least, you know, we're, we're being given a very limited history uh, of. Uh, of our of um, quote unquote human works on the planet, and so as as time goes on, more and more of this is being exposed, and I think that you know that's a great thing for future generations. And I love the fact that you brought up earlier that you know you're open to these ideas. You know, you're not necessarily saying like yes or no, but you're open to the ideas, whether it's whether they're humans, whether it's extraterrestrial, and you know, in in your theory, you know, with everything there, I mean, with the Nazca lines even, uh, what, what purpose would it be for a group of people to create these wonderful pieces of art that are so miles and miles that you can't even see when you're, you're making them on, on the ground? Well, that's a big question, but it, it seems quite obvious that the Nazca system was built between 500 BC and 500 AD. The first culture that was there were the Paracas, who were the ones with the elongated heads. And they created approximately 1,600 different geoglyphs, uh, not as much in Nazca, but north of Nazca at an, a location or area called Paupa. 
So if you fly in a plane over that area, it's impossible to photograph all you're looking at because they, there's so many of them, they go by so quickly and they're all on top of little mesas. Um, and then later the Nazca replaced the Paracas culture and they were responsible for the really giant ones like the hummingbird and the spider and, and those ones. And those are all in Nazca itself, but it's a very complex system built by two different cultures over a thousand years, probably for different reasons. Hmm. But yeah, the main thing is that you cannot see them from the ground. Um, you have to either be in a hot air balloon or you have to be on top of a mountain or you have to be in an airplane to be able to see them. So how they were coordinated and how big a workforce it would require are still mysteries to this day. And the whole area is very incredibly arid it's the northern part of what's called the atacama desert which begins in chile so there's basically no rainfall um you, in order to get water you have to dig into the earth in order to be able to tap underground streams and rivers to be able to get water and that was the genius of the Paracas and Nazca peoples that they were able to tap into underground aquifers and that's the only way they were able to survive and actually thrive was be able was because of of discovering the underground water and the brackets were astonishingly successful at agriculture in such an incredibly desert area uh, that they actually had quite a large population uh, from about 500 bc to 100 a.d it's fascinating that they were you know able to, and determined to be able to find a water source and yeah you know what and where they got that knowledge to be able to search for it you know, that's, that intrigues me as well too. Like, what, And I think about the intrigue too of like, are the Nazca lines just made because there's some, this inherent nature within humans that maybe there's something above us. And so we're just creating this artwork for the gods or, or is there a purpose? Is there a reason? Like, those are the, those are the questions that I ask, you know? Yeah. So it's just, it, it moves me and what it inspires people, you know, and that's why like, you know, earlier asking you, your, your, your motivation, your inspiration from early on to where you are today and what keeps you going. Like has, mm -hmm. it's, it's great that you're still just this passionate about what you're doing today. I love that. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. And do you have any, you know, and you've got a lot of books out. Do you have future plans? Are there any new books on the horizon? Um, I don't think so. I've written 37 books, which is a lot. And um, the only subject I can kind of think of would be um, maybe a book about ancient Israel, because there are, aside from the biblical locations, there are also some megalithic constructions that are not properly understood in Jerusalem that I'd like to see. Um, and then also, as I said, India at some point in time. Uh, would be a great subject matter because there are, are cave systems there that could not have been done by the whole host culture that we think of because they're just massive in scale, very hard stone, um, you know, in the bedrock. And so that would be another possibility. But uh, aside from that, not really. I'm still making videos and probably will continue to do so for the time being. Yeah. And, uh, where can folks find the YouTube channel? What's the handle on that one? Uh, it's my name, Brian Forster. Perfect. 
Awesome. Definitely uh, enjoy a lot of those videos and implore people to check those out. Those are great. And do you, do you bring a large crew with you? Is it like a small crew? Is it just you? Like, what's that look like? Yeah, it's just me. That's awesome. But I have, to, I have done a number of documentaries for Discovery and uh, Ancient Aliens and, you know, that would involve a crew of four or five people coming down from the U.S. in order to film. Uh, so I've, I've done a lot of that as well. But yeah, in terms of, of my own work, it's uh, it's just me and trying to keep up with the with the technology as much as possible because cameras are becoming smaller and more powerful. And especially the, the gimbal cameras, which are incredible for stability. Uh, you know, now you can pick them up for maybe $400, whereas in the past they would have been these giant things that would cost several thousand dollars. So with the advancement of technology, things like, you know, things are getting smaller, cheaper and better. And also with uh, drone technology, of course, as well. The first one I had was one, you know, it's about that big. <clears throat> and uh, now the latest one I have is about that big. And it's, you know, it's uh, as, as they advance, they become smaller and a lot easier to use. The latest one that I got, you know, all you, you don't have to connect up to any apps or anything. It automatically does it by itself. All you have to do is push a button for it to raise itself off the ground. And then it just hovers there until you tell it what to do. And it can even handle up to, up to 30 mile an hour winds being stable without, um, you know, because it compensates for the wind. So, you know, drone technology is absolutely amazing and incredibly useful uh, for the work that I do. I would imagine, geez, you know, it's one of those things that you don't think about until like, you, you know, you hear it, like how important that would be for, <laughs> for your line of work, having a drone, be able to get places you couldn't get to <laughs> get those shots. Oh, yeah. Man, yeah. That's awesome. And, and have you found that like, at least, at least now, you know, having been away from it for a few years because of everything that was going on in the world, is there, as I get there, is there a new rediscovered excitement at all where like, you know, you've had some time away from it. It's almost like, all right, I got to take a break that I didn't want from it. And so mm -hmm. I just want to dive back in. Yeah, basically. Again, um, I haven't been to uh, Bolivia for about three years now, so I'm I'm very eager to see if anything has changed at, at the locations we've been talking about. I go to Machu Picchu probably about three or four times a year. Nothing is really changing there. There's still a lot to still be uncovered in the jungle. Mm. Nothing of major importance, but they're still finding terracing systems and things. Um, so yeah, I just I, I have a, a very close affinity with these locations. Um, you know, Peru is my home now. I couldn't I, I couldn't think of living anywhere else at, at this point because it's just uh, you know it holds my imagination. The the uh, elongated skull research will probably continue. Still, we've done a lot of DNA testing. Whether I'll do much more in the future, I'm not sure. But I'm in the area where these ancient people lived, so I'm in in the right location if any new discoveries are made or if uh, I have a number of sources of people who have been able to show me artifacts from this area, which uh, and elongated skulls and things. So that, you know, that's an ongoing thing. So no, I'm very much at, at home in Peru and plan to stay here. That's awesome. And I love the fact that you, you especially with your research, you know, you, you try to find, you delineate between what is like an elongated skull versus one that would show binding or, you know, the differences between them. And I think that's important that enough people aren't talking about is that there are differences between what those skulls would look like. 
No, definitely. Uh, we, you know, we've pretty well proven that the original practice people were born with elongated heads. I've seen a number of like newborn babies that had elongated heads. So that discounts the idea of cranial deformation. I've even seen drawings of, um, of seven to eight month old fetuses that show elongated heads. So that you know dismisses cranial deformation. So obviously in the beginning, people looked like that and later descendants wanted to emulate what the ancestors looked like. So that's when they began the cranial deformation process. Absolutely. And, and I mean, the first time you saw one, I mean, in, in person, he, what was that like? Well, it was in a little museum run by um, my mentor who died a couple of years ago, but uh, it was a mummified elongated head. And I, you know, I, I come from a biological uh, background. I have, I have my degree in, in biology and, I just looked at that and I said, I don't think you can bind, you know, because I was told the story that it was a bound bound head. I, I thought it's too big and too complicated to be bound. And that's when he introduced me to being able to see these in person before I saw them on TV and stuff. But it's quite different to be able to see them in person. And over the course of time, I've seen hundreds of them now. So as I said, uh, you know, some that were fetuses, some that were newborn, some that were two years old etc. So uh, you see the clear deline uh, delineation between what a natural elongated head looks like, and then, uh, you know, the beginnings of binding, and then the late stages of binding, the transition from the Paracas to Nazca, when you get to the Nazca time period, which is around beginning around 100 AD, that's when cranial deformation ended, the Nazca looked like the average Native American person. Um, also, the Paracas nobility had dark red hair, which has been proven to be genetic. But when you transition into the Nazca, it goes back to black. So, you know, the intriguing characteristic of the of the Paracas died out. And um, even amongst the Inca, there are testimonials that when the Spanish first arrived in Cusco, they saw people with elongated heads, and when they found out the process that created that, they automatically made it illegal. So that process amongst the Inca also died out. Also stories that the Inca had, uh, the nobility had dark red hair, not black hair. So, you know, that makes the genetics of even the Inca much more complicated than simply being an, an Andean people who very rapidly developed a very advanced social uh, system. Do you, in, in your opinion, do you think that there was some sort of, whether it was, you know, human intervention or extraterrestrial intervention where somehow, some way these new genetics were, you know, crossbred into, you know, the existing indigenous people? Well, that's the mysterious thing is that the Paracas suddenly appear on the coast of Peru around 800 BC and disappear 100 AD. So that's far too short a time period excuse me, to be evolution of some kind. They suddenly appear from nowhere, then gradually disappear. So again, I'm open to the idea that they may have been descended from either an ancient civilization that was terrestrial or an off-planet civilization that um, found their way to this area and 
gradually had to mix into the local indigenous population for survival. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, I'm, uh, you know, I've, I've written three books about the elongated skulls now. And, I, you know, I've documented uh, a lot of anatomical characteristics, which makes them quite distinct from being homo sapiens sapiens. Mm. And folks want to buy your books. Where can they find you on the internet? Uh, they're at Amazon. Perfect. Awesome. And uh, what's the best website that folks can find you at? Uh, HiddenIncaTours.com. Awesome. That has links to all of the, um, all the videos, to the books, to articles I've written, um, you know, upcoming tours, previous tours, thousands of photographs that are free. Of course, all of the YouTube videos. I think I've got 2,300 and something YouTube videos. And of course, they're all free. You can also buy them, <coughs> excuse me, through Amazon Prime if you want. Excellent. And what's the one thing you would uh, want to share with anybody if they're going to travel to see some of these megalithic structures? Like what's the something important that people should keep in mind? Well, I think if you simply watch, you know, some of my videos or those by some people I've influenced, such as Ben of Uncharted X or Jimmy of Bright Insight or Johanna James, um, you'll see we're, we're all talking about the same thing. We're showing the clear distinction between what the known civilization could do and what they must have inherited. So, you know, in terms of the Egyptians, of course, we see the clear difference between what a dynastic construction is and what a pre-dynastic construction is. And even some of the, um, excuse me, <coughs> younger ar archaeologists in Egypt are now starting to watch my videos <laughs> and they're seeing that they haven't been told the whole story. And the same thing whenever I go to Machu Picchu, some of the guides there will come up to me and say, oh, Brian Forster, I've been watching your videos. Thank you. I had no idea that, you know, my homeland had such a complex history because I wasn't taught that in school. I was taught the Inca or other cultures did all of this stuff. And now I can tell from watching, you know, what you've been showing that clearly there was, you know, there were advanced people in the past that had to have occupied the area first. And then the Inca came and discovered uh, the sites that they, you know, originally found. And there you have it. I can't thank Brian enough for all his time, his energy, and just his decades of research and expertise. If you would like to find out more about Brian Forrester and some of the many books that he has, be sure to look up Brian Forrester on Amazon. Or if you're interested in taking one of Brian's tours, he's got a few coming up in 2023. So be sure to hit up hiddenincatours.com and you can find Brian on Instagram at Brian Forrester. We will be moving to a bi-weekly format going forward just to make things a lot easier and for you to get caught up on some of the episodes. So we'll see you in two weeks. Be sure to hit that like button. We hope you're subscribed to the channel and comment below and let us know your thoughts on some of these ancient megalithic structures. Until next time, take care of one another and keep thinking for yourself. <laughs>